Well, we're going to be looking at the Bible now. It's September, so we take a couple of weeks in September, uh, following the academic year and uh, the sense that things are beginning to build up again uh, after the summer. Uh, It seems to me that everybody follows this sort of rhythm somehow. Even the X Factor starts again in September or October. Uh, And all of these game shows, there's a sense that the summers are kind of lull and then we get into uh, the real business again. And in church there's no difference. So we're taking a couple of weeks to think about the year ahead. You know, it's good to do that. It's good at the beginning of a period of time. It doesn't matter whether it's September or January or some other time that's helpful to stop and to think about what God is asking us to do. And so last week we were thinking about this. We were thinking about what God was calling us to in the year ahead. And I was talking to Heather about it this morning. I know that the discussion at life groups last week was sometimes very deep and sometimes struggling to get a a grasp on it. And really that's because we were looking at the glory of God. That what we are called to in the year ahead is the same thing we're called to every week, every day of our lives, which is to glorify God, to make him look big, and to enjoy him forever. Because that's what our souls are created for, that's where lasting peace and joy and hope comes from. And so I, I want this week to think about the second part of that really, which is what we do with our money. Now, there are two reasons why that follows on neatly. If you think about family life, if you make a plan, I want to go to Disneyland, you then need to work out whether you can afford to go to Disneyland. Uh, otherwise, you get to the airport, you realise you don't have any plane tickets. That's the main reason why we haven't gone, I'm told. When you make the plan, you need to work out what it costs. Money goes hand in hand with that. There's another reason why, though. We thought last week that the glory of God, we saw that the glory of God is intimately linked to our joy. That as human beings, we are created to find our deepest satisfaction in Him. And so it's worth thinking, is there anything in our world which gets in the way of that? And I want to suggest this morning that money is the biggest thing. It's the biggest obstacle to joy. I'm going to do this in two parts. I'm going to look at, first of all, what the problems of money are. And then secondly, so you're transparent, I'm being transparent about this, I'm going to argue that you should give your money away. I don't want you to feel like there's been a bait and switch. Uh, that's what's happening. I'm about to make an argument for giving your money away. As I do that, I'm conscious that I'm from a tradition that has a bit of a credibility problem on this. And uh, so I want to emphasise that I don't get any more money if you give away your money to the church. My stipend does not change, it's fixed. Uh, I don't go up or down with the markets. Uh, I don't have a horse in this race, if I can put it that way. Let me summarise what I'm going to say. Keeping hold of money can separate us from God, cause us anxiety and lead to bad choices. Yet if we invest our money in God's kingdom, we can find peace and joy and purpose. So again, keeping hold of money can separate us from God, can cause us anxiety, and can lead us to bad choices. 
Yet if we invest our money in God's kingdom, we can find peace and joy and purpose. Anxiety, separation from God and bad choices. Peace and joy and purpose. We're going to read some Bible passages now. I haven't asked to do this. Heather, do you want to come read one of them for me? I'm going to to read Luke in a minute. Is that okay? First of all, I'm going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 17 to 18. I'm not putting the words on the screen. I've been in Derbyshire all week. Uh, it is the most beautiful place on the planet, I've decided. Uh, and part of the consequence of that is I actually didn't do the slideshow properly. Um, so there are no words on the screen. But it's good to look it up in the Bible. So in my Bible, it's page 187, right at the beginning. And again, I'm choosing to read from three different bits of the Bible, from... Moses is teaching the Old Testament from Jesus' teaching and then from St. Paul's. So we can see that what we're saying runs all the way through. So this is Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. And this is Moses talking to the people of Israel when they are going into a land, the land that Heather talked about earlier, They're going into a land and they're going to have enormous harvest. It's a land which is going to be very, very fruitful. And so Moses says to them, You may say to yourself, when you have all of this stuff, when you you have eaten and are satisfied, you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's all about me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. And then we're going to flip forward to Jesus' teaching. This is Luke 12 and verse 22. Hey Galab, you can read it from here if you want. Up to 34. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no store or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. 
where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then finally we're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again in the big print Bible I'm looking at. It's page 1194. And this is Paul writing to his successor, basically. Timothy has been appointed by Paul to carry on his work in Ephesus. And he's written a letter to warn him of problems that will arise and how he should deal with them. I'm reading from verse 6 to 10, and then I'm going to read 17 to 19. Chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Then verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, so they can be really alive. This is the word of God. Money, money, money. Must be funny in a rich man's world. I am on a bit of an ABBA kick this week. Uh, I uh, am rejoicing, still rejoicing, in the greatest news of the year, which is that ABBA are actually reuniting and producing a new album. Did you know that? Not only are they minting it in off uh, the Mamma Mia films, but they are actually getting back together to produce new material. And I'm filled with a sense of hope about that, because I want to hear new material from ABBA. I've been waiting my whole life uh, for this moment. And yet also dread, because... Uh, there's always a, a bit of a worry. What if your heroes really did get back together and they weren't as good as they used to be? You think, ah. Oh. They, they wrote this line, money, money, money must be funny in a rich man's world, which is hilarious because they are absolutely loaded. And the irony of it is that money isn't funny in a rich man's world. Right, the point of the song is saying that actually money is a deep problem for those who are wealthy. Money can be a source of enormous blessing. I mean, that's in a sense self-evident. It's, it's how we feed and clothe ourselves. It pays for waistcoats and other such joys. It pays for food and for drink. For shelter. It's part of how we fulfill God's command that we go into the world and subdue it. It's all about that. Money is important. Having money is important because we are people with a task. Humanity has a task. We're to go into the world and subdue it, to make something from it, to invest, to be productive. 
It allows us to pursue our own enjoyment and it allows us to bless others. It's my birthday coming up. I'm not saying that for any particular reason. But my Batman cufflinks are broken. I fell over an Amazon package on the stairs. There's a proverb in that. I broke my Batman cufflinks and now I don't have any more Batman cufflinks and I can't get any more without money. And if one of you wanted to bless me, buy me some more Batman cufflinks, you would need money. Please don't do it, I'll feel terribly guilty. Yet it poses a huge risk to our happiness and to our spiritual and mental health. I'm not talking here about the problem of poverty. The problem of poverty is self-evident. People who don't have enough money to eat are in a real problem, have a real problem. I'm actually talking about the problem of having too much money. You might uh, be sitting there thinking, I... I'm not sure that I am really with you, Phil. Let me tell you, there is a condition that clinical psychologists have identified. It began to be identified about 100 years ago in the West. It is called affluenza. There have been several books published about this recently. It's not a new idea. But it is observable that the wealthier economies get, the richer people get within certain countries, the higher their rates of mental illness the higher their rates of physical illnesses associated with that, so the rates of heart disease are significantly higher in the West than they are in the Global South, for example, of depression, of anxiety, of a sense of unfulfillment, the richer a society gets, the more it is blessed materially, the worse its mental health gets. It begins to lack empathy as well. It's actually come up in court recently, in the last few years, as a very cheeky defence of somebody who'd done something terrible and uh, he had no empathy at all. And they were saying, why doesn't this guy have any empathy? And part of the reason it was suggested was because he was from such a privileged background that he's actually now mentally ill. He'd always had what he wanted. He was able to do whatever he wanted. And so he hadn't developed part of his personality that meant that he should empathise with others. Now you might be thinking, hashtag first world problems. And you'd be right. But it is a problem. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible says, as on this subject, as on everything else, well I told you this 3,000 years ago, if only you'd been listening. Everything we have comes from God and is received as a gift. That is, it is not earned. Okay, when I'm talking about earning something, I mean I do something for you and you have to give something back to me in response. Now this is obvious, but it does need restating because of how quickly we forget it. None of us earn the air we breathe. It comes to you before you have accomplished a single thing. It is not given in response to your ability or mine. It is given to everybody. We are given the air we breathe. The ground that grows our food does not, is not earned by us. It is just there. Our physical bodies. Which of you earned your physical body? Now some of you, I can tell, have worked on their bodies. Very successfully. Obi, you're a very handsome man. 
But we weren't, we weren't earning the original materials, we, we were born. Our mental capacities, here's one, those who are clever tend to think, well I'm clever, I've earned whatever skill set I have. Not at all. You're born with a capacity for doing something. You might have worked at it, you might have exploited it. But there are certain differences between my body and Usain Bolt that mean he could run a 9.7900 meters and I can run a 15 second 100 meters. And I could work at it for 100 years and it's not going to get close. I dare say he would struggle at doing a law degree. At a more immediate level, which of us earned the societies we were born into, the education we received, the opportunities we've been given? All I'm doing is making the simple argument that everything is a gift. St. James said this, every good and perfect gift comes from, your father, from, comes from the Father of Lights. Nor are we capable of controlling the circumstances that take things away from us. The great fiction of life is that we can control when we lose our money. We can do our best, but we can't control the passing of time. We can't control the age or the rhythms of nature. Or on a human level, we don't choose and cannot control the loss of friends or the ups and downs of markets. This was uh, starkly illustrated, I think, about four years ago in this area where all of a sudden there was significant flooding. And uh, the flood defences that have been built up over time, and uh, you realise, one realised that across the UK, people were living in the illusion that they'd conquered nature. That essentially you could control when the world flooded and when it didn't. And it became painfully apparent that that's simply not true. You can do your best. But in the end, we can't control these things. We may have worked hard for what we have, yet we cannot escape the hand of God in every drop of rain, every breeze we feel, or every gently enjoyed ray of sunshine. Acknowledging our dependence and being content with what we have received is the path to joy. The path to joy comes from acknowledging that. And being content with what we've received. It focuses our attention and our gratitude on God whose very nature is love and who never fails. It removes the burden of creating our own prosperity in a world we cannot control. But then comes money. And it does this trick and I still can't work out why and how it does it. I can only assume there's something within us. There's an aspect of our fallenness, an aspect of our sin that, that it plays upon. But it does the most extraordinary trick. As soon as we receive money, we want to hold it tightly. We begin to feel like we've earned it. But for money, you can substitute anything. Cars, houses, clothes... We become to feel it is ours. This is brilliantly rendered by um, J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. The, the ring at the centre of this story has this power that whoever holds it can't let go of it. They come, they're trying to destroy this thing because it's so powerful and it's going to destroy the world. And yet whoever holds it wants to cling on to it and will do anything to get it back. It's theirs. 
I won't spoil the ending for you, but actually, Endgame only comes to be destroyed through an accident. We come to think of it as ours. It's come to us because of something special about us. This is what Moses was saying. Moses was saying to these people, you've come out of Egypt, God has done signs and wonders, he's leading you into a land, he's given you, none of you have even been here before. Forty years ago your people were the slaves, you were the lowest of the low, you were being murdered in your thousands. God has got rid of all of that, and yet as soon as you get into a land, you're going to say, oh, well, aren't I great? I'm a self-made man. We're a self-made people. Somehow, we forget that everything is a gift and start to think of it as a right. I saw a vivid depiction of this this morning. My sons were arguing over a pound coin. Every week in order to give them some pocket money, but also to teach them that you do have to work if you want other people to give you stuff. Uh, We get them to help with setting up and setting down the church. If you see them diligently pushing the chairs at the end of the service, they earn a pound coin for doing this. I said to them, it's not fair for you to come to my workplace and have to work with me and not receive a wage, so I will give you a wage. I'll pay you a pound coin if you help. If you choose to sit and play on the iPad, that's your choice, but you don't get any money. And somehow the pound coins had got mixed up and you could see that they were visibly distressed by the sense that this was their money and it wasn't in the right place. Now that's ludicrous, isn't it? If you'd asked me, do I really need the help of seven-year-olds to set the church down? No, it's much quicker without them. It would be much easier for me if they literally sat in the middle of the floor, folded their arms and said nothing. And I could just do it. I do it because I want to share with them, I want to teach them, I want to work with them. But in their minds, as soon as they've got the pound coin, it's theirs. They earned it, I had nothing to do with it. It's theirs. That's how we all are. And then secondly, we want more of it. You see, money's nice. It has this quality, it buys good and joyful things. And we want more of those things, not to, and not to lose the ones we have already. And so we become anxious. The more you have, the more you have to lose. We come to worry about losing what we have, or to worry about how to make more of it. This anxiety cannot be satisfied. And it can't be overcome, because there are endless ways we can lose what we have, and we don't actually have the skills to get more of it. So Jesus says this. He says, why are you you worrying about tomorrow? Why are you worrying about getting more money? That's basically what he's talking about. Clothing, food. Why? You can't turn one of your hairs grey... And you can't turn it back from being grey. Now, I'm somebody who empathises with this. I am, Heather tells me, going grey at quite a considerable rate. Uh, She's a very generous but very honest critic. I had to cope with driving across the Peak District yesterday in a smart car. Don't recommend that. And uh, every time I looked in the rearview mirror, there was in my beard a very long grey hair just sitting in the middle of my beard, taunting me. I thought to myself, I can't make my hair go grey and I can't make it go back. Sure, we can paint it. You paint it. Any of, the, any of us, I was going to say any of the ladies, that's sexist, any of us who've dyed our hair before will know that your roots come out sooner or later. Which one of you, by worrying, can, make, can even change the colour of your hair? So why are you anxious about money? Jesus says. 
Put simply, because we never earned it in the first place, it's impossible for us to earn more. Trying to do so is setting us up to be dissatisfied. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says to his followers, don't be anxious, don't be worried, he says. Don't worry, he says, about buying new clothes or houses or cars or phones or match tax cards or DVDs. You didn't provide them in the first place, so don't worry about them now. But we do. And then finally we begin to love money. This is the last stage. We're going to love it. When you find you love something, you come to do anything for it. That's what love means. And we make bad, bad choices because of the love of money and the desire to get more. St. Paul wrote to Timothy, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I can only assume he'd literally read the news of the world that week. Because that's exactly right, isn't it? You want to get money? There's actually a film about this in the, in the cinemas at the moment, about the Hatton Garden diamond heist. People who had about 20 years, if that, 15 years left to live on this earth, spent their time breaking into a vault to steal more money. Just a terrible choice. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now we can see this as a problem. It's one that secular psychologists are talking about, the affluenza. You read Oliver James' book, Affluenza, How to Be Successful and Stay Sane. I don't recommend it if you're the faint of heart. He is quite explicit in his language. But it's interesting. What's the solution? You can't run away from it. You need it. You can't uh, avoid it. And in any case, it would be a bad idea to avoid it. But we can change how we relate to it. And the Bible gives two big practices we can do to stay happy and healthy. First, we can acknowledge regularly, verbally, that we are grateful to God for what we have. Say grace before meals. Right? I mean, that's an old-fashioned one. And you can do that in a way that's helpful or unhelpful. At my college in Cambridge, they used to mutter something in Latin that no one spoke. And everybody sat down and said, we said grace. I thought, well, not really. It means saying thank you. Acknowledging that I've got food on my table because Waitrose sold it to me. Because I had the money to buy it. And there was a farmer somewhere who grew it. And he grew it because God made the ground and sent the rain and the air and the sun. And gave me the chance to work in a church and gave other people the... So every time I say, thank you, Lord, for this food, I'm basically saying, I recognise that everything in the world comes from you. Here's a practice for you. How about on the day when you pick up your pension cheque, or it goes into your bank account, or on payday, you say grace. Thank you, Lord, for this salary. I know that my hand did not make me rich. My own strength did not provide this. When you take an exam or open exam results, whatever the result is, say it before, the res- before you open it, whatever I have comes from you. I want to thank you for it. An attitude of gratitude. That's not enough, however. We can thank God for what we have, and yet we can still be in the power of money. Saying thank you isn't enough. We have to break its power over us. So what should we do? 
Well, Jesus speaks about seeking the kingdom of God. I wonder how many of us have read that passage. You know, look at the lilies of the field. See how wonderfully they're clothed. Be anxious for nothing. I've seen it on so many posters, I cannot count. On little greetings cards. It's funny how few people report the punchline, which is, so sell all your stuff and give it away. Don't worry about anything. Just sell all your possessions. And give them to the poor and it'll be fine. Be anxious for nothing. What Jesus understood is that if we use our money for the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's not just talking about prayer, he's talking about finance. That's why he says, sell what you have and give to the poor. That's the next paragraph. It comes after a parable about a rich fool who kept saving his money and building bigger and bigger bonds and then died without having any time to enjoy it. And in the middle of it, Jesus says, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to be free from this anxiety. And the way to be free from it is just to give it away. We've received more than we can ever repay from Christ. And now we are called to partner with him and with each other to bring the good news of God's love to others. As the people of God, we are called to give money for the work and the support of God's kingdom through the church. We should be generous and support the poor. In general, this means setting aside a regular part of our income to get together with others in the church to give. We do it together. And we give and we build the kingdom of God. In this church, the money that we give goes to helping people in flooding in the Philippines. It goes to supporting uh, one of the big charities we support is the Baptist Missionary Society. I'm going to play one of their videos next week, but I haven't had a chance to download it. It goes to paying for eye treatment. It goes to paying for water. One of the interesting things about faith-based aid agencies, apparently, is that when other NGOs, non-governmental organisations, pour into an area, they come in very quickly... When there is a natural disaster, Oxfam moves in very quickly. But what happens is that they leave very quickly as well. I'm not having a go at them. There are lots of good people working for them. They do great stuff. Faith-based agencies are interested in building something that lasts. So very often you will find, if you read reports of stuff, it's people like the BMS who have stuck around for years after flooding. To build the kingdom of God, to feed the poor, to build housing, to rebuild infrastructure. We get together and give our money together, pool our money in order to support people like that. And to pay for telling people about Jesus. There are three particular reasons. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's talking about this. He's talking about pooling our resources to pay for for telling people about Jesus Christ. For spreading the good news. For saying, you live in despair and fear. Well, here is a man who came and died and lived and rose again in order that you can be free of fear. You are alienated from God. Here is the path back to God. You are anxious and worried and afraid. Here is one who cures fear. 
you are guilty, here is one who brings forgiveness. We get together and we seek the kingdom of God by paying for that. When we pool our resources, it supports evangelism and the church's mission in Hersham. No one else is bringing the good news of Jesus to people in our village except the local church. I don't just mean our church. Each one of the churches in Hersham is doing it in some ways. But this is the one that we're part of. We give because we believe that there is no more important news that people can hear than that Jesus loves you. That you are loved and can be forgiven and can be restored. It enables us to care for others. This is the second reason we give to each other. There are terrible people who will give money to people who are in distress. I know because I've worked for some of them. I've talked about this before. When I was a lawyer, I represented them. It was one of the few occasions on which I was cheerful to lose. Because my clients were terrible people. Now, you're not allowed as a lawyer to say, no, you won't represent someone. It stops people cherry-picking. I didn't really have a choice. But I would get out of court and they would say, well, how come the judge didn't enforce this debt? And I would say, because I actually said to one of them, look, the terms are terrible. They are unfair. We lost and it is good that we lost. I didn't get instructed again. We lend money to one another in the church. We actually give money to one another in the church. I'm not going to say any, give any details about this, but there are people in the church who've come to us and said, I really need money, I'm in financial difficulties, I can't make ends meet before the end of the month. We said, don't worry at all, well, how much money do you need? Because we support one another. There's a joy in that. When we get together and give as a group, our money has a bigger impact and is more help to others than when we give alone. There's a temptation in this. Always to think, well, it's fine, I'll just pick my charity and I will give to that. And my friend, uh, uh, trying to always pick a name, there's not someone in the church. Jake. No, Jake's in the church. No one's called Jake? Okay, Jake. He'll give to his own friend and he likes, he likes one charity and I like another and I like one missionary and he likes another. And so we each give to our own. The problem with that is it's not very helpful to the people you're giving to. When we give as a church, we make a commitment and we say that whether people are here or not, we will keep giving to you. Because we do it together. It has a bigger impact and is more helpful to others than when we give alone. Each one of us, I'll be as firm about this as I am about anything, should be giving away money in the year ahead if we are able to do so. There is no minimum amount. The key is to try and cultivate a generous spirit and a cheerful heart. With that said, it is good to aim to give away as much as you are able to help others. John Wesley said, earn as much money as you can. So work hard, earn as much money as you can, save as much money as you can. Don't fritter it on stuff. And then give away as much money as you can. In today's money, Wesley made millions and millions each year. So much so that the tax man, uh, the nascent tax man, wanted to know why it was that Wesley didn't declare, uh, didn't have any assets that they could attack for income tax. It wasn't a sort of proto-Amazon. And they did an inquiry into Wesley and they found that the only thing he owned, this man who for his day was earning millions, was two silver spoons. One in Bristol 
and one in London so he didn't have to take a spoon with him when he travelled. Earn as much money as you can, save as much money as you can, give as much money as you can. People sometimes ask me, as somebody who is a Wesley scholar, I write articles about John Wesley, I'm about to submit another one for publication. They want to know why it was this man had such an impact. I would suggest that you can make a good start by inquiring after his two silver spoons. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things should be added to you. There may be some of us who are not able to give at the moment for whatever reason. If that's you, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. There's no law. Heather was saying that earlier. There are no rules. I'm not checking. God doesn't mind if you really can't give. But when you find yourself able to, start. We will find as we are generous and give that God allows himself to be in no one's debt. Life lived generously and open-handedly is far more blessed and joyful than one with a closed fist. You know, we're going to take communion. Do you want to do a testimony? Yeah. We're going to post online a testimony uh, that I'm going to write up on a blog of lives that have embraced this principle and actually of the report back. What I would say in brief is that Heather and I used to have uh, an income that measures in six figures. As you'd expect from commercial barristers uh, and a criminal barrister. She was a drain on the ticket. If you ask her, and you can ask her afterwards, she's here. Heather will tell you that she's never found herself more provided for than after we'd given it up, sold our house at a loss, moved here, and existed hand-to-mouth for three years. That somehow, and I cannot explain to you how, there was always money in the bank at the end of the week, that when we needed stuff for the car to be fixed, it would literally just arrive out of nowhere. Stories of ridiculous stuff, like the boys snapping my glasses in two and a cheque arriving in the post ten minutes later. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Just sit where we are. I want to invite you to put your hands out. Maybe show your eyes. I'm just going to be quiet for a moment. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Give space for us to respond to what he's been saying. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.